This is Purple Radio On Demand. Yesterday, Anthony Stokes played. Oh, yeah, I had Anthony Stokes. Well. He, he, he was at Arsenal as a youth player. I had no He's, idea Anthony Stokes yeah, played in the dead run. I think it was his second appearance. <laughs> It's unbelievable. That's a fantastic statistic. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, recently signed. <laughs> I was just scrolling through. because That I... is what you call a well-travelled football. Hello and thanks for listening. If you've been scrolling through Spotify on whatever 21st century gadget or gizmo you own and have randomly decided to click on this podcast, then let me assure you that you are tuned into the absolute best you could find. This is the second episode of Gone Too Bar and it comes a bit later than we would have liked. Technical issues stopped us from making the show last week. Keeping us AB, would you say, like lions in a cage? Oh, absolutely. Is that an appropriate analogy? But now we are back and we are ready to unleash ourselves on the savannah (laughs) of football and what a show it's going to be. We'll be doing a bit of excavation work, digging through the history of British managers abroad to see if Alan Pardew was a fool or a genius for taking on the ADO Den Haag job in the Netherlands. Not only that, AB, you've suggested the Tehran derby. Yeah, very interesting game. Really good game in the end as well, the Tehran derby down in Iran. Uh, which is kind of difficult to travel to at the moment, uh, despite yes. my protestations. I think I might be on some sort of watch list now. But uh, no, it ended 2-2, and uh, certainly we can talk about that now. Yeah, we'll a lot to discuss with that. And of course, games and discussion of the latest English and European action here on Gonti Bar. My name is, as always, Luke Power. And as he's already been introduced, Man Banerjee, you're with me today? Yeah, just me. Not Josh Nickel called out ill at the last moment. He's done a mess at Ozil. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> Josh is ill. Ben Sharp was ominously quiet. We don't know where he is. We hope he's okay. I saw him in the library. I fear he might be having some sort of a work-related meltdown, oh, but I'm not no. sure. I can't confirm. Summative season has claimed <laughs> another victim. Best of luck to Josh. So we'll start, of course, in England, and we've had a fourth-round FA Cup replay fixtures so far, and we've also had... Last weekend, Premier League fixtures. We'll start with Spurs and Man City, which finished unexpectedly 2-0 to Spurs. Steven Bergvine scoring the opening on his debut with an edge of the box volley and Son clinching the win for the 2-0 victory. Um, City have now lost two on the bounce for the first time since December 2018. Do you think City have a real crisis going on at the moment, AB? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a real crisis. Certainly, I don't think that Naturally, they're in the position they expected to be at the start of the season, so far behind Liverpool. Not even in, not even close to being in the Premier League race. I think they've got a certainly a defensive crisis. I think that it was very sort of almost naive of Pep Guardiola not to replace Vincent Company, not just as an on the pitch defender, but an off the pitch leader. I think that's something that's been lacking. And certainly when Imerich Laporte got injured, we have seen the defensive fragility of Manchester City. Uh, well, which has certainly been exposed in the last few months of the season. I think they've also missed Leroy Sane. I think Raheem Sterling for the last couple of months hasn't been at his best. Yeah. And so I, th- I think there are a few little problems there. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a full-blown crisis, but certainly there are defensive fragilities. They're now being linked with uh, Milan Skriniar. These reports are saying that Pep Guardiola is willing to offer Cancelo and 65 million for him. He's a good player. He would go at least some way to solving that. But certainly, I think there needs to be a little bit of a reshape of that back line. Certainly, when you compare it to someone like Liverpool, who Manchester City want to be competing with and currently are not, there, there is still a little bit of a, a gap to be bridged, which seems weird to say, given that they finished on 98 points last season. Mm. But I think definitely they're missing Vincent Company, and, and we saw that after Company left, there were only one sort of really bad injury away in the form of the Imerick report from being very, very fragile and precarious defensively. Yeah, I don't think he would have been anywhere near 22 points behind it. Laporte was still there. It, it's strange to see that absolute difference because a couple of years ago, Otamendi, he was getting a lot of stick. And I, I think he's improved personally, but it, it's been exposed again. He clearly has the frailties and probably isn't an individual Premier League title winner without Laporte at his side. Yeah, he's still a player I struggle with. You've seen him um, you know, certainly struggling with some of the bigger games this season. I think if you're chasing a title, and especially if you're chasing a an absolutely magnificent beast that is Liverpool. You've got to be doing better than Nicholas Osmendi yeah. at, at ten and a half because Liverpool in that position have Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez who are both mm. absolutely outstanding. I take that as a personal compliment to Liverpool <laughs> fans. Um, to be fair against Spurs, a lot of people don't trust expected goals, but I don't mind it actually. And they apparently were meant to score 3.23 goals 
whereas Spurs were only 0.42. So Man City were clearly on top. They were creating clear-cut chances. He had several things that you thought, you know, that should have been a goal. Spurs, their press was really quite good. They were cutting Rodri off, forcing Man City out wide. Spurs, I feel like they've improved defensively since Mourinho was coming to the team. Have you noticed any changes in Spurs after Mourinho's first 19 games? Yeah, well, watching this, I, there were sort of two ways of looking at it. The first way is that Spurs were very, very lucky to sort of get a to get that win. Manchester City did miss a whole host of chances, including that LK Gondogan penalty. Mm. So that's one way of looking at it. The other, the other way of looking at it is that this was a classic Mourinho ball. Contain, 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 and then hit them with a couple of great goals. And let's let's not make any bones about it. Steven Bergwin was excellent on his yeah. debut. A uh, fantastic strike for his goal as well. I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think, as you say, Spurs pressed really nicely. Defensively, they were they were pretty good. Manchester City still created their host of chances, but Manchester City are always going to do that. And, and you need a little bit of luck. And, and, and they rode it. There, there were periods of the game where Spurs looked dangerous. And now Tottenham find themselves, you know, only four points off top four. So certainly from that respect, there were 14 when Mauricio Pochettino left. Mm-hmm. There's been an improvement. There have been, you know, certain elements where you would get the feeling that they're not playing that well and, and winning. That was certainly the case in midweek against Southampton. I watched that game. I thought in that particular game, they were very, very lucky. I thought Southampton deserved to win. And there have been sort of results earlier in the in, in the league campaign, which have been slightly, you know, slightly iffy, slightly, slightly ominous. The loss to Southampton, the uh, the draw to Norwich, or of course, bottom of the league. So I, th- I think it's a bit hot and cold, but I think Mourinho knows what sort of side he wants yeah. to build. He knows, you know, what sort of players he needs. And it'll be interesting, given one or two transfer windows, to see whether whether he can take Spurs in that direction. I think a lot of journalists have, like, you know, Oliver Holtz in the mail on Sunday have written how this is inevitably going to end in tears for Spurs. I'm not so sure. I, I, th- I think Mourinho is a man who is perhaps past his best, but certainly is still amongst the elite of the football managing world. Yes. Um, I think where Mourinho was really, really... And in his peak was, you know, in two thousand in, in the mid and late two thousands, where you know constructing teams on a defensive solidarity was um, was very in vogue. It was the thing to do. And now modern football, with the arrival of sort of Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp, has shaped it so that it's more about constructing attacking patterns and constructing attacking movements, which I think was where Mourinho more struggles, and that's certainly what we saw at Manchester United and certainly his latter days at Chelsea as well. However, I I, I think you know. He, He's still he's still a manager who who wins trophies. He's, he still gets big results, and, and he's still world class. So it'll be really really interesting to see where he takes Spurs, and certainly that's a that's a, that's a very good result for them. Absolutely. Now another London club who appointed a new manager fairly recently was West Ham, and David Moyes of course got off to an amazing start with two wins, but then they've gone winless in six, which is exactly the same as Brighton, who they played at the weekend. Glenn Murray back for his first start since September, and he grabs a goal at the end to equalise for Brighton. Do you think both sides are seriously in danger of of relegation? And do you think one of them will go down if you've had to put money on it? Well, I think West Ham are in big trouble. Just because I'm looking at their fixture list and their next six games are Manchester City away, Liverpool away, Southampton at home, Arsenal away, Wolves at home, Tottenham away. And actually then the seventh game is, uh, is Chelsea at home. So that's a really, really nasty run of games to go into. And, uh, they're already in, in the relegation zone. I've written about West Ham and I've written about certainly their ownership structure. And I think this is a club which for the last few years has been absolutely and completely infected with mediocrity. Um, and there was a very nice line from, uh, from, I think it was Neil Custis in The Sun, who wrote, um, Manuel Pellegrini is a man so devoid in personality that revolving doors won't open for him. Um, which <laughs> oh, I think he can't get to the airport. Yeah, exactly. No, so so, and I think that's very much been the story of, of West Ham over the last few years. Certainly under the the uh, uh, GSB uh, ownership, the Gold Sullivan Brady sort of sort of ownership, which is which is what they're calling it now. This is a club, West Ham, who are built with character and spirit and all and all that sort of you know, proper footballing heritage that we saw at the Berlin ground. And since I've moved to the London Stadium, you know, go to go to the London Stadium, go sit in the stands, you're so far away from the pitch, that ground is so devoid of atmosphere. And we know it's not the West Ham fans. The West Ham fans are brilliant. It's a it's a problem with the ground. It's a problem with the fact that this ownership seem unwilling to invest in any sort of footballing infrastructure. Yeah. They've had forty two strikers in the last ten years. 
only six of them have got into double figures in terms yeah, of goals. That is that is ridiculous. Mm. You know, there's no plan. There's no long-term strategy. And you even look at it in terms of the managers. They have Slavin Bilic to David Moyes to Manon Pellegrini and now back to David Moyes. Now, these are managers who are completely different to one another in terms of the style of football they play, in terms of the direction they want to achieve. You had the sort of attacking dynamism of Bilic and then the sort of more direct approach of David Moyes. Then you go for the slightly conservative option of Manuel Pellegrini, who's, you know, tried and trusted and he's got a track record, but he's just come in from China, uh, which doesn't have a particularly great footballing infrastructure, certainly in terms of longevity. And then they've, got, they've decided that's not working out. And they've gone back to David Moyes. They, they, they sort of ab- ab- Some continuity uh, yeah, rising up. Ab- the abandoned a couple of seasons ago. But they're sort of, it's like the West Ham sat-nav is yeah. broken. And it's just lurching the club from one direction to the yeah. other. And they've, got, they've got no idea where they're going. And so they find themselves actually now. I think they're in real trouble because they're 80th. As you said, they haven't won in six in all competitions. And then that picture on, how many points are they realistically going to get? From? You know, I struggle. I, I really do. They might pick up, you know, an odd point here, you know, Arsenal in particularly good form, another and Chelsea, so an odd point there perhaps. That's again being optimistic and other teams around them will pick up at least some degree of points. I think they're bang in trouble and it wouldn't surprise me if they went down. Yeah, well, at the start of the season, I actually thought that they would. And even despite you saw such an amazing team that they have, and, you know, this is definitely on paper a side that should be pushing for the top 10. There just doesn't, feel like there's something right. I definitely agree with you. They spent a lot of money, but it's a lot of money misplaced. Sebastian, well, first of all, the new stadium that yeah. nobody likes. But Sebastian Haller, he's coming, he's only got a handful of goals for a £40 million signing. What What do you make of him? I think he's playing okay. I think he, he he's able to bring other people into the game. Well, I watched Sebastian Haller at Andrecht Frankfurt last season. He's a very good player. He's a big physical presence, but he can't operate alone. Last year, he did so well at Frankfurt because he was surrounded by Ante Rebic and Luka Jovic, who both themselves got big moves to AC Milan and Real Madrid, respectively. West Ham, he doesn't have that. He's got the likes of Andrei Yarmolenko, who's, you know, a player you might sign on Football Manager for Everton. Uh, <laughs> it's always how to describe uh, Andrei Yarmolenko. And, you know, someone like Manuel Lanzini, who's, who's always injured. He's a good player on his day, but always injured. He doesn't have that infrastructure around him. He's a good footballer, Sebastian Haller. Mm. I, think he's a, I think he's an excellent striker, actually. But especially when you're that sort of physical, in-the-box player and you're not somebody who's going to come particularly deep to get the ball as he does and he's not going to be someone who creates chances. He needs that presence around him. And he doesn't have, he doesn't, he's not even close to having that at West Ham. Yeah, I think they are in dire straits, West Ham, at the moment. Interestingly, this week, they've appointed Kevin Nolan as a first-team coach. Maybe he'll bring something extra. He's been a player-manager at Leighton Orient. Well, I think past, more than anything, I hope he brings back the, the West Ham feel. Yeah, that's because the thing. that's been lacking completely yeah. as a point in the new stadium, you know. So maybe there's going to be a little bit of that, a little bit more of the. I think there's a lot of passivity amongst the players. Yeah, it's, it's a it's you know a place that I think a lot of players go to pick up a paycheck towards the end of their mm-hmm. careers, and you need a little bit more of a spirit there. And I think if nothing else, he's not a particularly experienced coach, albeit I think from what I hear is a talented one. Just bring back a little bit of that character and that West Ham life that we associate with that football club more than anything. We'll see what sort of paychecks they'll be getting in the championship. (laughs) So a final Premier League game that we'll touch on and then we'll move on to the FA Cup because there's been a whole hecticity around that this week. We'll just brush quickly over them because Liverpool beat Southampton 4-0. Liverpool, my beloved team. But everybody's talking about them at the moment. Of course, why not? 100 points won out of the last 102 possible. 42 games unbeaten in the Premier League. I can go on and I don't mind going on, but I'll spare our listeners that. There's no stopping Liverpool, of course, this season. But something that's cropped up recently is that Jordan Henderson, he's a favourite to win PFA Player of the Year. He's now 4-5. to five. He was a rank outsider at the start of the season. He's ahead of a lot of other more creative. I see Kevin De Bruyne as a lot better. I see Emiliano Buendia at Norwich. He's creating so many more chances. And I've been a real critic of Henderson in recent seasons. I think, you know, he makes a lot of effort. But I feel like with Jordan Henderson, we're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. He isn't Steven Gerrard. He was never going to be Steven Gerrard. And I don't think that we should have tried to mould him to replace him. I've never been that confident in him. However, this season he has markedly improved playing in a more advanced role. Yeah, well, I think Jordan Henderson is absolutely fantastic. I th- That's I th- nice. Of you. Yeah, I think I think he's a really, really good player. I think you know, in terms of his leadership qualities, as much as anything, uh, but his passing range is fantastic. He's good defensively. He's almost got the sort of complete set of what you'd like 
in a footballer. He's he's man so successful. He's got his own trademark trophy left. That's insane. I'm not sure I would have had him down as favourite, but it doesn't surprise me that he's there because I think he's been absolutely brilliant. I mean, he is the beating heart of a Liverpool side that are unbeaten in 42 games. I mean, that is no mean feat in itself. And he's got a lot of criticism. It just shows that people get people get players wrong and, you know, journalists and pundits. And even Sir Alex Ferguson doubted Jordan Henderson. There's a line in his autobiography about Jordan Henderson's running style and how it'll affect his knees. Later on, let's go, well, he's 29, he's doing okay. You know, so, you know, I, I think he's, he's absolutely brilliant. I think that there's a good case, certainly with Harry Kane's fitness issues, to give him the England captaincy for this upcoming European Championship. So I, I think he's a he's a wonderful player. And I, I actually, personally, I love watching him play. I think he's, you know, he's brilliant. I think he's a wonderful captain, but I'd rather have Chamberlain in my team. Than I, think, Henderson. I think they're different players. I think, you know, Chamberlain will give you that, almost that Aaron Ramsey-style directness running into the opposition penalty area but if you want someone who can pass the ball if you want someone who can cover your defenders and I know that's predominantly uh, in, a, in a fully fit Liverpool side that would be Fabinho's role yeah. but you know a lot of that does um, obviously since Fabinho's injury does fall to Jordan Henderson um, and I think I, I think he does that I think he does that perfectly I think he's got a with Jordan Henderson it's important to play to, to his strengths and I think that's what this Jurgen Klopp Liverpool side do do fantastically, and, and they're getting the absolute best out of him. And yeah, and the absolute best out of Jordan Henderson, I think, is a really, really class player, and that's what we're seeing. Well, for all the games he's played this season, he didn't feature in the FA Cup because against Shrewsbury, <laughs> we won one nil, an own goal by Roshan Williams, and unfortunately, Henderson didn't make it into the youngest ever Liverpool side with Pedro Caravella being our oldest player on the pitch at age 22. A lot of people have laid into Klopp saying he's disrespecting the cup. He doesn't understand. We saw, say, as a parallel Spurs versus Southampton, you know, they were playing the, the key stars. And people are saying, oh, he's disrespected the FA Cup. But come on, these youngsters, first of all, won our place in the fourth round against Everton. We've got a congested fixture schedule. It's a Premier League winter break. If anything, our players have earned it. Is Klopp really such a bad man? No, I, I completely understand where he's coming from in terms of you know he's he's one of a lot of managers who've been criticised who have criticised this split fixture schedule in the past. And I think rightly so. I think you know looking at it from a biological perspective, certainly over the Christmas period, the human body, whether you're a professional footballer or not, takes seventy two hours to recover all the glycogen mm. levels that you lose during ninety minutes of playing football, and that simply isn't the case a lot of the time, certainly when you look at the Boxing Day game. So I think he's perfectly entitled, almost a protest even, to put out this side because the FA, having promised this winter break in England for so long, have finally given it and, and, and they're now making Liverpool play a, play a match during it. And as you say, Liverpool did win the game. They beat Shrewsbury. And I, first of all, want to say, I think that's absolutely extraordinary. I think it's a brilliant result. Yeah. You know, these youngsters, you know, there's so much talent there. I look at someone like, like Harvey Elliott, uh, Necker Williams, has uh, yeah, he, he's brought up a lot of headlines, and rightly so. I watched him against Arsenal in the extraordinary five-all game, and he was brilliant. Got the assist for the for Liverpool's fifth goal. Curtis Jones is excellent. I think Shirovella is a good player as well. So yeah, no, I, I think this is an incredible show of faith in a club where everything needs to, everything is working in synchronicity from John W. Henry, the owner, all the way down, as you see, to these 18, 19 year old lads who are capable of winning winning a, an FA Cup knockout game. I just think that, you know, out of respect to Shrewsbury and all that they achieved, I don't mind Liverpool putting out a side of youngsters. I would have quite liked to see Jurgen Klopp on the touchline. And a shout out to James Milner as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely um, outstanding professional as he, as he proved again. You know, Neil Critchley, the under-23 manager, was talking about how, you know, how much of a great player. He was in the dressing room, he was very vocal, he was, he was very loud, he was encouraging the players and... You know, he seems like such a nice guy. I mean, he but he yeah. he did say, "I'm not doing this because I'm a nice guy. I'm actually coming from an injury." So I'm, I'm <laughs> so, so he's very humble as well. But you know, I I think that's just a you know a sort of representation of how Liverpool are working. I mean, everybody's reading from the same page. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I think it's uh it's it's a very good result. Yeah, I I was about to say thank you. For that. <laughs> I'm not a Liverpool manager, but you're absolutely right. And I I don't see these players breaking into the Liverpool side in the Premier League. We are too good for that so they've got to have a chance somewhere and why not the FA Cup whilst we're still on the FA Cup are there any other games you'd like to pick up on Newcastle against Oxford or Oxford against Newcastle I should say because this is a game I went to the home leg off which was an absolutely dour nil-nil at St James's Park but the uh, I didn't actually watch it but the return leg seems to have been sort of a lot better this finished 3-2 after after extra time and 
you know, credit to Oxford. Very, very plucky side. Getting themselves back into it in the 84th and 94th minute before, you know, Alan St. Maxima, you know, scored in the 116th minute. I, I think, you know, Steve Bruce is obviously... He's but he has unlike Jurgen put, put out a you know a full strength side. He is desperate to, especially I think with the fan base and elements of the fan base never having taken to him particularly. I think Barry Glendening made a good point on Football Weekly earlier that no matter what Steve Bruce does, there are elements of that fan base that will never accept the fact that Steve Bruce is is manager of their yeah. football club. And maybe that's because it was seen as quite an uninspiring signing. Maybe it's got something to do with the fact that he used to manage Sunderland. But I think, you know, more than anything, that has spurred Bruce and Newcastle on to, to have a good FA Cup run. And that, you know, and that's why, you know, even though it's two legs against Oxford, they put out such a strong side that they it would have been very easy just to sort of not throw the game, but, you know, take it slightly more easy. But they didn't do that. And even across, you know, what was ultimately 210 minutes of football, they kept slugging it out. And, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm pleased for the football club. I'm pleased for the fans that they're finally into the latter stages of the FA Cup. It's been a, it's been a very long time coming. And uh, I'm pleased for Steve Bruce as well. And I, I hope because he, he seems like a very decent man. And he, I think he's doing quite a good job at Newcastle, yeah. given some very difficult circumstances. They've had a lot of injuries. You know, the, the entire ownership debate doesn't help either. But, you know, I, I think he's, he's gone in with a lot of doubters and he, he's in the midst of proving them wrong. So I'm very pleased for him. Yeah, so I, I absolutely agree. Steve Bruce has done an incredible job at Newcastle, and I think he doesn't get the respect he deserves. Now, we're going to move on now. That's enough football, specifically professional football anyway. Maybe it's time for us, because this is a game that was going to centre around Josh. However, Josh isn't here. We wish him well, of course, as we did before. And the game we've devised is going to be called Incredible Beyond Credibility, where one person each week tells a fantastical story, and the rest of us have to act as detectives working out if the story we're telling is fully true, if it's slightly true, or if the story we're telling is completely false, A.B. Now, it might sound like the comedy game show, Would I Lie to You?, but just as a disclaimer, they copied us the <laughs> way around. I have a story, A.B., and I might add a few false things onto the end of it. I don't know, but are you ready to hear it wow, and interrogate Never me? been more ready. Okay, so I had a 10-year youth football career, roughly, from about under eights, under 16s and then I did a bit of five aside in year 12 okay and in about under 13s we were a very very good side we weren't quite Pep Guardiola's Man City but we were fifth out of six in the league and we were against the bottom place team and our goalkeeper the reason we were fifth is because our goalkeeper bless him he was a very nice guy but he wasn't very talented he played for a rugby team for 18 months and not won a game with them and he joined us and he was hardly winning a game with us. And it was nil-nil and it, we were on the cusp of half-time and we'd been battering them. And then suddenly the ball gets pinged into our box and somebody says, pick it up, pick it up. And so what do I do as the centre-back? I pick it up and give away a penalty. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm not sure why I did it. They go and score the penalty. We go down 1-0 at half-time to the bottom team in the league with no points. Nobody can believe it. That's Luis Suarez forward slash Steve Cook syndrome. Sort of thing, yeah. And so what did I do? I ran away. <laughs> I was in floods of tears. I, you know, I destroyed my career. And I ran all the way home. That is my story. Well, it's, it's sort of the opposite of what Sven Ulreich did a couple of seasons ago in, in the Champions League, right? Where he, he came for the ball and then realised he couldn't pick it up because <laughs> it, it, it was a back pass and then he ended up fluffing his lines and conceding. Um, well, actually, uh, there are elements of the story which I think are definitely true. I do know you play football. So I know yeah. you play football and you've, you've mentioned also that you're a centre-half. Yeah. I know you're a centre-half. So I think certainly there are elements of that true. I think I think it's all true to the fact that you you I, I know you you're, you're dumb enough to pick up the ball in, the, in your own penalty area. <laughs> have a have a have a little moment of madness there. Um, and Nicholas Otamendi knew it. Uh, and I don't think you ran away at the end of it. I think you know oh. ev ev everything's true up to the point you gave away a penalty. You went one nil down to the bottom of the league because of, because of you. But I don't think you ran away at the end of it. Am I, am I correct? You are correct. You're <laughs> too good at this. What an amazing segment. <laughs> That was meant to be more difficult, but I couldn't <laughs> think of any... I think the problem with this segment is everybody wants to tell their nice, fun stories. <laughs> no, nobody wants to make something completely up, and yeah, maybe it was a bit too easy. Um, on the subject of easy, there's something that might not be so easy, because we're now going to move on to British managers abroad. 
And Alan Pardew was recently, well, in December, appointed as Ado Den Haag manager. And that was to save them from relegation. And in his first home game against Walwijk, he must have been so spine-chilling because the fans prepared this incredible TIFO of him and his assistant Chris Powell, casters of Ghostbusters, and he even had the iconic caption, Who you gonna call? And it must have been incredible to see this. You know, they love me. These people who've never met me love me. But at the same time, such pressure. And they've won four points out of their first three games. It's just got us thinking. British managers abroad. Is it a good idea to lead, to up sticks and leave England, maybe? Like, let's take, for instance, Roy Hogson as a starter. He's done very well. He's managed a total of 13 teams in his illustrious career. He's won 13 titles abroad. This is probably quite an easy one to start with. He's had an amazing career abroad, hasn't he? He has done. And I think Roy Hodgson is sort of unusual in the sense that nowadays you get managers like Pardew perhaps going abroad almost to sort of revive their careers. That's the very sort of modern modern thing to do. But Hodgson came from a time where he started off, you know, uh, completely transforming football in Scandinavia. And in Sweden, actually, I think he's still seen as a real pioneer of yeah. the way they play football. He's seen as a real football revolutionary. And he's almost sort of come from that, you know, coaching Switzerland at the World Cup, managing into Milan, uh, into the English scene, and ultimately becoming England manager, albeit we all know particularly unsuccessfully. Um, whereas Pondew, and you look at the likes of, you know, Steve McLaren, and I'm, I'm waiting, by the way, for Alan Pardew to come away with this you know, slightly Dutch accent, uh, <laughs> like, like like Steve did, who, who you know, had a, you know, an unsuccessful couple of years in England and, and sort of got then gone abroad, sort of revived, drive their career, sometimes with success, sometimes without. So, you know, I, th- I think, you know, British players abroad is also an interesting one. Everyone remembers Joey Barton's French accent yes. when, he, when, he, when he went to Marseille. But certainly even you look at sort of David Moyes after he went to, to Real Sociedad, um, that didn't work out for him in the end. But I, I, I do like the idea of British managers abroad, the way I see it. You know, we've got so many. We've got a, an entire melting pot of, of continental managers in the in the UK, in the Premier League. And I think it's certainly good that we send our, we sort of export our managers and, and, and see how they get on in other leagues. I think as much as anything, it's, it's very, very interesting. I think there's still a sort of slight view that amongst certain elements of the continental media in particular, if not the continental continental football clubs, uh, that English managers are slightly more sort of old school, slight dinosaurs. And certainly um, Gary Neville's stint at Valencia yes. didn't help that. I think the uh, Valencia president after he left described him as the worst coach I have ever seen, which is hardly... What an insult. Yeah, hardly, hardly ringing praise. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that foreign English managers find when they go abroad, and this is what Bobby Robson found at, uh, at PSV, Mm. Eindhoven in particular, and I think a little bit at Barcelona as well, but particularly at, at PSV, is that the foreign press, and this is one of the main cultural differences, I think, between continental football and, and English football, is the foreign press are far more interested in asking about tactics and asking about, you know, game plans and strategies. That doesn't really happen. If you go to an English press conference, you know, it's all about what did you think of incidents. It's sort of all very incident-based. You know, what did you okay. think of the red card? What did you think? Was this a penalty? Whereas you go you go abroad, and this was certainly the case when Robson was managing, and and I think it's still to an extent the case now. It's all very much well. Why did you play this way? What was what was your thinking behind playing that way? And they really like to have quite in depth and deep discussions about the tactical outlays of football matches. And I think that translates down to the players as well. I mean, Robson, you know, would would sort of say later that uh, the manner in which he was surprised the way he was. Challenged, not challenged in a negative fact, you know, challenged almost in an intellectual capacity by some of the PSV players on his tactics and, and what he was doing. Whereas that doesn't happen in England. In, in England, you tell a player to play a certain way, he will almost like a dog immediately play in that way. Whereas on the continent, unless you're Kepper, unless you're Kepper <laughs> is a blogger where you just if you refuse to come on to a, come off the pitch, even. Um, but um, but th- there is that slight, slightly more culture where, where players seem slightly a little bit more in tune tactically. Um, I'm not sure it's the case that English players aren't in tune with tactics. I just think they question the ma- the uh, the, uh, the tactical outlay of the manager less. Um, but I, I think it's very very interesting. I, I think you know there are some great stories of, of English managers abroad. There's some great success stories. I mean, the one that always pops up to me is uh, Howard Kendall uh, okay. at Athletic Bilbao. You know, he's now revered as a as a club legend there, mm-hmm. um, which is which is funny given their. Uh, Obviously, Bill Bowers' proclivity to almost come across as a Basque national team. 
and and you know I, I think there's a real escape to you know you can go out there and create a, a, a sort of cult for yourself and we mustn't forget that uh you know all back to the sort of 50s and uh, and beyond uh, beyond that all, all of a lot of these football clubs uh, started out having English managers because it was the English who brought the game about abroad which is you know sort so, sort of why um the the term for for manager abroad or what the players call their manager they will never call they will never call him boss again they will call him mister they will call him mister which is also initially an English word mm. so 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 you know go, going back all the way to sort of um, you know twenties and thirties and forties I think there's a very interesting history of of, it, of English managers abroad and, and certainly the, the cultural dynamic has shifted uh, certainly over the last thirty forty years in terms of why English managers go abroad. And I, I think it's actually something happening a, a lot more in the women's game now as well. We've just seen Nick Cushing, the Manchester City women's manager, go go off to uh, go off to America. Yeah. And I think that's partly due to the fact that unlike you know the Premier League, which is one of the five major European leagues, you know, women's football in America is, is bigger than it is in the UK. It's it's absolutely huge. And and that's why we see, you know, um, the manager of, of of the Canadian national women's team is is a, is a Geordie, never played professional football in his life. So th- there's a huge culture of that in women's football as well. And I always find it very very interesting. I find it fascinating to see how English managers, perhaps more English footballing ideals, fare fare abroad. And you, you have some real success stories, you know, like Kendall and, and Robson at Barcelona. Um, and and I think three that, titles in one season of Barcelona. Uh, absolutely, and I still think the way he was hounded out of that football club was was yeah. well it reflected very very poorly in Barcelona. Let's put it that way. He's European Manager of the Year. Ab- well. Absolutely, absolutely. Incredible job. Yeah, I mean it, it almost rings sort of true to certain things that happened in Barcelona in the last couple yeah. of months. But you know, because um, I think it it can go one of two ways, or you can end up having a sort of Gary Neville, David Moyes like experience. And you know, I I would um, I'm always happy to see English manager role, as I am happy to see continental um, continental managers bring their ideas to England. Yeah, Graham Potter is there another example. Yes, with him no. going over to Austria and getting them three. Promotions yeah, I mean he he that's um Potter's a very sort of unusual example because he's sort of one of those where he's taking the sort of Roy Hodgson route. And that's yeah. that's despite being you know sort of younger, he's not too young, Graham Potter, but he's a slightly younger ilk of manager. So I so I think he's a almost a sort of anomaly in in, in that sense. But certainly, and I think it's it's certainly a, a route pursued as well now by by managers who perhaps haven't had the playing career to automatically put them into a sort of top flight or at least a major English club role initially, like like Potter, not going to get a a top tier job. On the back of his playing career, so goes to uh, to Ostersunds and and does magnificently. There, Ostersunds now, I believe, are in a little bit of trouble actually with Adam. I think yeah, they've they, declined they, a bit since. Yeah, still on the top flight. Still in the top flight, but I think that they are fighting. If I'm not mistaken, which I might be, they are. They've had some financial trouble, and they are now fighting for their lives mm-hmm. in the top flight. So, so certainly, um, the job he uh, that makes the job he he did there um, all the more remarkable. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to think of various tips and things not to do if you're a manager of all, with Graham Potter, get your players to do a performance of Swan Lake. Yeah, no, I did hear about that. Well, I just think that that's yeah. sort of, you know, I, I don't know, sort of sort of quirks you can, you can yeah. um, and a sort of different sort of way of looking at players that you can acquire whilst whilst abroad. Um, yeah, Roy Hodgson also, you were speaking, he's revered. He actually was offered a lifetime contract. After winning five league titles at Malmo, mm-hmm. well, he decided to go to Neuchatel Scamax in Switzerland because he said the taxes in Sweden were too high. This is a shame. He has a corner of the stadium named after him. It's literally called Roy's Corner. It's incredible. He's he's adored. Yeah, um, it just makes what his time as England manager all a little bit more unusual. But um, yeah, I, you know, Hodgson, I think is certainly. Um, He's obviously a very well-travelled man, a very well-travelled football manager. He speaks a lot of languages as well. Um, so yeah, it's um, uh, it, it's it, it's nice to see um that sort of recognition from English fans yeah. abroad. Something that you know, as we've seen from Bobby Robson, you don't always get. And maybe you know, a couple of years down the line, Luke, we may be talking about Alan's corner maybe. In, 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 in the Hague. So uh, so who knows? Absolutely. One final one I want to pick up on is Graham Souness. Now it depends how you define abroad because he won three league titles at Rangers. He won four Scottish League Cups, but. Is Scotland abroad? I'm not so sure. So we're going to leave Scotland behind and we're going to look at what he did. Now, I've got a lot to narrate because basically he did okay at Benfica. He was sacked after four months at Torino. But I think the incident that everybody associates 
that everybody associates Graeme Souness with is a 1996 Turkish Cup final when he was Galatasaray's manager against detested rivals Fenerbahce. And it's the intercontinental derby. Galatasaray are on the European side of Istanbul. Fenerbahce are on the Asian side. And it, he nearly sparked a riot because I'm sure everybody's seen the clips. Is when after winning in the extra time of the second leg, and this is at Fenerbahce Stadium, he grabs a flag from the crowd, he storms to the centre of the pitch and he plants it in the middle of the pitch, much to the hatred of the Fenerbahce fans. And there was actually retaliation. A guy who I think was a bit of a lunatic by all the accounts that I've read, called Rambo, a few years later a Fenerbahce fan, hid in the Galatasaray Stadium overnight and one game went and planted a knife in the middle of the pitch. It didn't go down quite as well, but Fenerbahce also took further revenge in 2012, when Galatasaray won the Turkish League title in Fenerbahce's stadium, another time where they've broken Fenerbahce hearts. And so what do they do? Fenerbahce cut the lights of the stadium and turn the sprinklers on as Galatasaray are celebrating their title victory. So the lesson is, if you're managing abroad, maybe be aware of you know the, the cultural tensions and don't plant a flag. Well, the, the legacy of Brits abroad just causing chaos as usual. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So for the next little segment, we're going to focus on football derbies because there are some absolute sizzlers going on this week. And AB, you were the one who mentioned this. Yesterday took place what was voted in 2008 the biggest derby in Asia between Persepolis and Estegal, the Tehran derby in Iran. Do you want to talk us through it? Yeah. Well, this is a a derby that I've sort of studied a little bit in the in the past. Um, it, it's a derby with huge political weight on it. Persepolis versus, well, or Perusia is their official name because that was the name given to them after the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran. Are traditionally considered the club of the club of the, the, the club of the elite, the club of the hierarchy. They used to be the at a time where Iran was still a monarchy. They used to be the club of the monarch. Whereas Estegal are very much seen as you know the working class club. Um, and and yeah. Um, this is a derby which which is, has always carried you know a lot of political meaning behind it, particularly after 1979 when clubs were sort of nationalised by, uh, by 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 the Iranian state, uh, and so every time these two sides meet, there's it's one of those derbies where it's not just because they are the two historically most successful sides in Iran, uh, it's also got a lot of you know. Um, cultural meaning to it, and, and so I was fascinated by this, and I, I saw that you know they were. They were they were playing this this Thursday, um, and it actually turned out to be you know what was quite a good game football wise um, is as well. Perspolis are, are currently top. Uh, it was a two all draw in the end. Two goals from Amir Mutahiri, who I've never heard of for for, for Estegal, but they were both cancelled out um, in the 89th minute. In fact, uh, Perspolis scored an equaliser scored by scored by Bashar Hassan. Um, but you know the the this game sort of showed I think more than anything I think what I'm interested by is that the cultural importance of football, you know, across the world across all of these countries because obviously we live in a time now where Iran has been over the last month or so certainly since the start of 2020, you know, the world has been watching Iran. But what I find fascinating is whilst the world watches Iran, Iran watches football for its political dynamism for its political culture to come to the fore. Um, and I, I, I think that that's very, very interesting. It's certainly a game that I'll, I'll keep my eye, eye on in the future, and yeah. and certainly, a, certainly a game that that always attracts attracts the attention of, like you just pointed out, crowds not just in Iran but all across Asia. It's definitely highly politicised. The stories of physical fights breaking out between players, uh, chairs being thrown onto the pitch, mm. and after one game, this was a few years back, two hundred and fifty buses were destroyed after one yeah. of the games because the fans went on a rampage around the city of Tehran. 60 fans were arrested. Why they chose to destroy buses? I don't know what the buses did wrong. Just a minor nuisance. Yeah, just just stopping people from getting to work. So It was a 2-2 draw as well. You'd yeah. think they'd be quite happy. This was in 2001. Uh, the, the highest attendance of this, 128,000 people back in 1983. This was when it wasn't a seated stadium and there were actually people clinging to the floodlights. Well, this is when I think as well, part of the reason for that is that is, I believe, the sort of period where when the Islamic Revolution happened, football was seen as a, a sort of Western luxury, a, West, um, a puppet for Western culture. And so football was sort of oppressed by the, by, the, by the Islamic Revolution, as it had been sort of, you know, previously amongst conservative factions. There are tales from Iran in the 20s and 30s of footballers getting stoned because uh, 
the shorts reveal too much of the knee and it doesn't comply with the Sharia law. Mm-hmm. Um, but but certainly after after 1979, football was initially seen as a, as, as a Western puppet. And I, I think there was a sort of almost a backlash against that. And, and I wouldn't surprise me, I haven't studied this game particularly, if that was some sort of protest against that, because certainly that, that, that became the case in Iran that you know people still obviously wanted to go out and watch football. They still wanted to to watch Persepolis play and Estegal play. And 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 whether this was a sort of you know a sort of middle finger to, to the regime saying we're still going to go and watch football. Certainly after the nineties, however, and, and when Iran uh qualified for the nineteen ninety eight World Cup, that was at a time that that was that was a time when, you know, um I think that was the real turning point for Iranian football it's a time that the Islamic regime realized that actually, you know, this is something we can really use for good. This is something we can really use almost as a, as a propaganda ploy. Um, there are famous stories of that of, of um, Iran beating Australia in that final World Cup qualifier, and people opening beers on the streets of streets of Tehran. No and, way. Yeah, and uh, and whatnot. Um, and then we mustn't forget as well that later on in, in during that 1998 World Cup, Iran beat the USA one nil, and and knocked the USA out of that competition. And that I think was. Was the real turning point for certainly mm. Iranian Iranian men's football in in the sense that it was a time when the when the regime uh, were able to say actually you know what we're going to put our support towards football if only because we can use it as a propaganda play. Obviously, Iran's been in the news um, more recently in terms of the women's game. Uh, yeah. Previously, not allowing women to attend matches. Uh, that has now changed uh, ever, ever since that uh, protester set herself on fire and, and almost acted as a martyr. And the, uh, the Iranians have n- are now, um, as of I think October of last year, allowing women uh, into football matches, which is great. Yeah, it's fascinating to study it, to think women couldn't attend football matches. I mean, if you're a football fan, you'd be, ab- you'd be absolutely heartbroken not being able to go and support your team. Another thing as well, between 1995 and 2009, there were no Iranian referees in that game. They had plenty of talented referees, but they weren't allowing them to referee the game because there was such a backlash if somebody said, oh, he's biased towards Persepolis or Estegal, mm. that it, it wasn't considered a safe atmosphere for Iranian referees to, to officiate. It, it's mind-boggling, really. It's such a different culture. Of course, there's a lot of abuse towards referees in England. It takes to the next level there, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah but to, to ban them for a, a couple of decades... On grounds of their own safety, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Also, just another final thing about the Tehran derby. Yesterday, Anthony Stokes played... He used to play for Celtic up front, Sunderland. Oh, yeah, Ireland I actually well. he, he, he was at Arsenal as a youth player. I had no he's, idea. Anthony Stokes played yeah, in the Tehran I think it was his second appearance. It's <laughs> unbelievable. That's a fantastic statistic. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, recently signed. <laughs> I was just scrolling through. That I, is what you call a well travelled football. It is, it is. He, he's been all around now. He's, what, what a guy. He he didn't score unfortunately, but I think he came on as a substitute, and I hope he acquitted himself well, and he'll go on and do more. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's always a decent enough player at Celtic. So, uh, yeah, um, wow, Anthony Stokes in the Tehran derby, <laughs> Brits abroad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, another derby I'm going to mention. There are actually a few happening this week, so we'll talk. There's AK Athens and Panathinaikos that's taking place. Porto and Benfica, top of the table clash. But another one in Australia. In the A-League, there are four derbies taking place this weekend. I think one of them being played as we speak, but unfortunately we don't have some big screen with the Australian League on. We're not so that we advanced the purple radio. But the one that I want to pick up on is the one that isn't really a derby, but it's called a derby. It's the distance derby. And it is the longest away trip in top-level world football. And guess how far apart. This is between Perth Glory and Wellington Phoenix. Take a guess at how far apart they are. I'm really bad at geography. I'm, I'm genuinely got, I don't know, like... Uh, Any number. Uh, a thousand miles? 5,225. Oh Wellington Phoenix are the only team on the West Coast in Australia. And so for every away game, they have to travel at least 2,200 kilometres. It's unbelievable. 5,000 kilometres. I don't know how they do it. They do this... This this fixture's played three times a season as well, at least. And just to put that into perspective, England's most local derby is the Nottingham derby between Notts Forest and Notts County. And they're actually, according to Google, roughly 418 metres apart. So I've looked into this. You could make that trip 12,487 times wow. before the Wellington players could walk to Perth Glory. 
I do not envy them one bit. It's, it's bad enough walking up the hill in Durham. Yeah. I'm sure they get a plane. <laughs> but it's almost like, you know, you hear, you hear the stories of Russian clubs from Moscow having to fly out sort of rural Siberia yeah. and, and play clubs like Ural Yeterinburg and, and, and Tom Tusk and, and clubs like that, you know, the absolute vastness of it, um, which is, you know, I'd be really interested to see the actual effects that has on the human body. The way it actually affects players play, mm. the way players mm. play, because it, you know it's it's a factor of you know we're on a small island here. It's a factor we don't always consider, but certainly abroad in countries like Australia and Russia, it's it's a huge huge factor. And actually, actually, there's a really nice link to a derby I really want to discuss, and that's um well, there are a couple of reasons I really want to discuss this, Luke, and, and part part of the reasons uh, is what happened last night in the Copa del Rey. Um, so this 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 weekend. Um, this weekend, Athletic Bilbao, and it's important they're Athletic Bilbao, not Atletico Bilbao. I'll tell you why there's a historical reason for this. It's, it's, it's because um, they were the uh, Bilbao right on the, on the Basque coast in, in the north of Spain, and they were the first Spanish football club to be founded. Um, and they were founded by, by English sailors who was, who was sailed yeah. from Southampton. And which is why then they don't have that Spanish prefect, Atletico, they're athletic because they're, because they're formed by Southampton fans, which is also why they play in the red and white, the same strip as the same strip as Southampton. But uh, this weekend it is the uh, the Sunday. It's the derby between Atletico Bilbao against Real Sociedad uh, in the Basque Country. It's, it's this is almost quite you know a friendly derby. It's a very good atmosphere between the two clubs. They like to spur each other on. That's nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's eighth versus ninth in in La Liga. Bilbao started the season very well and then sort of tailed away, and then Sociedad had the spear where uh, Sociedad under Imanol. Having played some absolutely wonderful football in terms of uh, very pleasing on the eye. Unfortunately, in, in recent weeks, they were in a in a real contention for top four. They've now fallen away slightly to a point they're in eighth place. But I think what what could be really great is we could have a um, a Copa del Rey final between yes. Athletic Bilbao. An unlikely one. Yeah. Well, this is the first time since two thousand and ten uh, that neither Real Madrid nor Barcelona have been in the last four of the Copa del Rey. Um, and in 2010, Atletico Madrid and Sevilla were, were, were in that final four. Whereas this, after last night, and last night was absolutely extraordinary because two... Uh, I read a tweet from Sid Lowe um, th- this morning, the Spanish football expert, saying, did I dream last night that two Basque teams knocked out Real Madrid and Barcelona out of the Copa del Rey? And you didn't like, dream. No, absolutely. It's, it's one of these things that you've sort of got to pitch yourself. That really happened. First of all, Real Sociedad in an absolutely incredible game, beating Real Madrid uh, 4-3. You know, they took a a 3-0 lead and and sort of nearly blew it towards the end, but they held on. And then Athletic Bilbao beating uh, beating Barcelona 1-0. You know, it's absolutely extraordinary. And that means the final four of the Copa del Rey is Athletic Bilbao, Real Sociedad, uh, Mirandes, who are in the second division, and and Granada, it's absolutely brilliant, and it's I think a real triumph for the Spanish Football Federation, who I think I've mentioned earlier on this podcast have reformed the uh, the competition this season to make it slightly easier for the for the lower division sides with regards to scrapping replays, so it's over one leg, and certainly you know Mirandes have have benefited from that, so I think it's a it's a fantastic story. My money at this moment is probably on Sociedad. Okay. Um, but you know, it's it's certainly going to be a harder about an interesting season because they started really strongly, but they've tailed off a bit. They have done. They're they're currently uh, occupying mid table in the um, in in La Liga. They they started they started off absolutely wonderfully, and there was that period in October where, where they were top of the league. They then went on this uh, very poor run where they didn't win win in five or six games, but. You know they're they're very comfortable in the league. They're they're not in a in a relegation scrap, so, no. so they they can afford to throw sort of all their resources now into the Copa del Rey. Um, and I think I think it's really I'm I'm really really excited for the semi final. To be honest, I, I I think it's going to be I think it's going to be fantastic. And you know it's a very difficult call. And I would love to see actually Miranda's the second division side winning. Yeah. You know, um, but um, my money is on. On Real Sociedad, um, a fantastic football club. I visited them myself. They've got a, an absolutely wonderful sort of sort of little museum underneath their stadium where nobody ever goes. It was my mom, my dad, and I sort of went in there when we were visiting San Sebastian, and and the the, the caretaker almost seemed very sort of surprised to see us. And then he had to turn on all the lights because all the lights had been off because <laughs> oh, they, they just don't expect. You gave anybody. the man a job. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm so sorry, and 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 because they just don't get that many visitors, and and actually, it's it's an absolutely lovely little museum. It's a lovely football club, and I, I would like to see them do well, uh, do well also. Yeah, Miranda's beaten Villarreal four two, and Granada beaten Valencia two one. Really, we were saying last or two weeks ago that there aren't as many shocks in Copa del Rey, but I'd say each one of those ties this previous round in the quarterfinals were all up 
upsets. No, absolutely. Incredible. Yeah. Any other games around Europe that you want to pick up on quickly? Um, Ajax beat PSV. 1-0, yeah. 1-0, they're three points clear of Alkmaar. Yeah, PSV having a very, very poor season. Indeed, they sacked Mark Tandomela earlier in the season. This was sort of, you know, everyone talks about Ajax PSV as a, you know, a, a big top of the table derby, which it usually is, but this season it's not Ajax are... Amal's ahead of PSV and AZ Alkmaar are other closest contenders this season. They're actually running them pretty close. I still think Ajax yeah. will win the league, but I think it's been, I think Arne Schlott has to be up for European manager season, actually. I think the job he's done at Alkmaar is absolutely outstanding. In terms of other games, there are a few I'd like to pick on, uh, pick up on actually. Yeah. Uh, Bayern Munich versus RB Leipzig uh, this Saturday, top of the league, uh, against second. Uh, Leipzig drew two with Monchen Gladbach uh, last weekend. They've sort of going through this slightly. Um, you know, um, if you run a form at the moment, we've got to remember that before that, they were actually scored three goals in every game on the trot for 11 games. So they're an extraordinary side going forward. They actually scored, I think, 37 goals in 11 games. Uh, Bayern Munich have won six in a row. So it's going to be a really, really interesting interesting game of football. Robert Lewandowski, it continues this remarkable run of form. I think it's 25 goals in, in 19 games he's got now. It, it's absolutely brilliant. So, so that's definitely one to watch um, and, and one that um, the Bundesliga title race... Um, it's still on. Also, the Milan derby into Milan versus AC Milan. That's going to be a, a fantastic game of football as well. AC Milan now being linked with Ralph Rangnick uh, in the summer to come, to come in as manager. Uh, it, it'll be really interesting to see how their January, where they offloaded a lot of their players, goes um, in just, just in order to, to free up the wage bill and sort of reform the side. Inter Milan, obviously, are scrapping for that for that title um, uh, alongside the event. It's actually giving them a proper title race this season. Obviously, there's a, a large English contingent there as well. Uh, just otherwise, I can think it's um, uh, a British Dortmund against Bayer Leverkusen. With being, Haaland with, scoring with, with, eight goals in four games, exactly. One game in minutes. Uh, absolutely, he's now uh, eight goals overall, seven goals in the Bundesliga, meaning he's uh, I think only fifteen goals off Robert Lewandowski. <laughs> you can uh, catch him as, as, as top scorer, but you know it, it's there are a lot of games worth keeping an eye. on. My my one to watch would definitely be that uh, one PM on Sunday that that Basque derby between Athletic Bilbao and, and, and Real Sociedad. Very well done, Avi. You absolutely smashed it there at the end. We just about whizzed through all the games. I think we will spare Defend the Indefensible for another time. We've got Will Hobbs waiting outside. He's on the sports team here at Purple Radio, and he wants to do an interview with some of his rugby friends. So I think we'll let them have a bit of a play on our system in the podcast studio. So that is all we've got time for. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening and the top of my heart. Indeed, I thank you from all over my heart. AB, you've been absolutely incredible. Only two of us today, but thank you so much. No, it's been great. It. No, yeah, it's, it's been fantastic. I look forward to coming back next week. Amazing insights as always. We hope you enjoyed the episode with everybody and goodbye. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.